so the Obama State Department actually came to YouTube and said, like, we want you to take this video down. It is uh, directly related to protests, like destabilizing protests around the world. YouTube had this, uh, from my understanding, a pretty extensive debate about this. And I think it speaks to just like how the company approached uh, these kind of problems, right? It was like, we need to have like a blanket policy. We're not going to like do one off for just certain videos. Uh, is this an incitement to violence uh, or is this just criticism of religion? And YouTube decided it was criticism of religion. We don't want to outlaw and prohibit uh, criticism of religion on our platform. They kept the video up. Uh, not only that, but they actually like, kind of used it as like this moment years later of like testing our resolve that we are, you know, we're the platform of free speech and, and like, you know, we don't cave to governments, even our own. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 4th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. I spoke with Mark Bergen, a reporter for Bloomberg News and Businessweek, about his new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. YouTube is one of the largest and most influential social media platforms, but Bergen argues that it's long been criminally undercovered. As he tells it, the story of YouTube has a great deal to tell us about the development of the modern attention economy, along with the promises and pitfalls of the internet, and the struggles of platforms to grapple with their own influence and responsibility. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 4th. Mark Bergen on the rise and rise of YouTube. Hey, podcast listeners, we're going to do something new today. We're going to get to today's episode of Arbiters of Truth in just a moment. But before we do, we thought we would bring you an update from Roger Parloff, who has been attending the Oath Keepers trial in Washington, D.C. federal court. Roger, today was opening arguments. What happened in the courtroom? Yeah, the government's opening was not a big surprise. We've we've heard the general outlines of their case. The uh, lead prosecutor is Jeffrey Nessler. And then we had openings from uh, three of the defendants, from uh, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the top defendant, from Tom Caldwell, uh, and from Jessica Watkins' lawyer. And uh, then the other two, uh, the remaining two, just uh, reserved, as they say. They didn't give an opening. They want to wait to see how things develop. And so remind listeners uh, what this trial is and why it's important. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Yes. So this is uh, a rare thing called a seditious conspiracy trial that's really akin to treason. It's not used much, this statute. It's a Civil War statute. It hasn't been used in 10 years, I don't believe. And the last time it was used, it was uh, a failure. Uh, It was last used successfully, unambiguously successfully, in uh, the 1995 in the case uh, against the uh, blind uh, shake for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing the sheikh and about a dozen associates and everyone there was convicted. So is this fair to say that this is sort of the most important yet of the January 6th trials? 
Yeah, very much so. It's sort of historic each time there's a the use of this statute. What did the Justice Department promise it was going to prove against these uh, five co-defendants? Uh, so the, the, the conspiracy is to uh, stop by force, to prevent, hinder, or delay by force the transfer of presidential power and uh, by uh, preventing the execution of U.S. laws governing that process, the, the uh, 12th Amendment, the 20th Amendment, and the Electoral Count Act. And uh, most seditious conspiracy cases, you usually think of overthrowing the government. And, and some of those cases we've talked about, the World Trade Center was actually levying war against the United States. Those are a little different. There's also a provision, a clause in the, the statute for preventing, hindering, or delaying the execution of U.S. laws. And that's the one that this is proceeding under. And uh, they're going to uh, present a, a ton of uh, digital evidence from what are called signal chats. The, the Oath Keepers used a lot of this encrypted app called Signal and uh, then we're going to have testimony from uh, seven people have pled guilty already, including three of seditious conspiracy. So I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to have testimony from some of those witnesses, uh, as some of those uh, insiders, if you will. And what is the basic story that the government is going to tell here uh, before we get to the, the defenses we're likely to hear? What do you, what do you expect is the is the basic outline of the government's evidence. Well, what they're saying is they're going to show that really as soon as the election happened, they began to plot to not permit uh, Biden to win, to become president. And there's a lot of uh, signal chat to that effect. And then on, on January 6th, they have an arsenal of weapons across the river in Virginia. They call it a quick reaction force. Uh, in uh, They keep it at a, at a comfort inn in uh, Boston, Virginia, in Arlington. And they what they tell each other most of the time is that, well, this is in case Trump invokes the Insurrection Act. But um, the government's, which is this idea that Trump would call them up. Uh, he would invoke this law that's been around in various forms since 1792. And it is used to quell riots, to, to, to restore order after, you know, hurricanes and disasters, earthquakes. But the claim is they wanted Trump to invoke this. And if he did, that Trump was empowered to call them up as if they were soldiers and to use them to quell whatever was happening, the riots. And that's what they were preparing for. But there are these internal chats of different kinds where, and, and they had tapes, which they played today, where Rhodes is saying, in effect, look, this Insurrection Act stuff, uh, this is a legal cover because we're doing this anyway. Uh, regardless of what Trump does, we're stopping this from happening you know, Biden is a Chinese communist puppet. We aren't letting this happen. And the Insurrection Act is sort of a ruse. You know, this will 
be our story for why we're, if anyone asks, why we're stockpiling weapons at the Comfort Inn. And, and what did the defense lawyers promise in their opening statements? The defenses might not be united, but what Rhodes is saying is that the Insurrection Act is very much what this is, well, several of them are going to say is very much what this was about, that, that it's perfectly lawful and the Oath Keepers are to, to you know, it, nothing they did violated Virginia law. That's because the Oath Keepers research the law every time they're, you know, they act and uh, they knew D.C. law doesn't permit the guns. So that's why they put them there. And uh, the president didn't invoke the Insurrection Act. And uh, that's why uh, they didn't bring the arsenal in. Now, why did they go into the Capitol? That's a little more confused at this point. And it's possible that there uh, will be some difference in, in, uh, uh, defenses. I, I believe that Rhodes' attorney said that uh, Meggs was off mission when he, uh, Kelly Meggs, the co-defendant, led them into the Capitol. How long do we expect this trial to go? The judge told the jurors about five weeks or more. The government has been estimating three weeks for its case Uh, The defense keeps saying two or three for its case. Uh, They they told the jurors today that it might be more like six or seven weeks. We will come back to you, Roger, as the trial develops and people can follow Roger's live Twitter feed of the trial. Uh, Roger, what's your Twitter feed? At R. Parloff, R-P-A-R-L-O-F-F as in Frank. Thanks for joining us, Roger, and Quinta, back to you. Thanks, Ben. To start off, I actually wanted to start off with the the epigraph of the book. You you have two. One of them is from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I, I loved because you could read it as describing, you know, the creators of YouTube, but also the platform itself. You know, it's a story about the the agony of creation, but also about starting a process that you actually can't control. So what were you thinking with that quote? Is YouTube Frankenstein or is it Frankenstein's monster? Yeah, both. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess, I mean, YouTube, the company, I sort of saw as, as Frankenstein and the, the platform as uh, the monster and sort of by design, right? Like the, 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 the idea behind YouTube is that YouTube often talks about how it, there's no gatekeepers, right? And, and this is meant to be a media that doesn't have producers. It doesn't have people directing. It doesn't have um, agents. It doesn't have anyone sort of forcing a script or a direction. And it sort of goes its own path based on the creators and the audience. And so, yeah, that was, I think, uh, a pretty, it kind of hit home in especially like a lot of the crises that, that YouTube had. It felt like to people working there, it felt like this, not just the creators themselves and what they, what they uploaded, but even like the algorithm and, and the, like the machine that they built was, was like outside of their control. So then tell me about the other epigraph, because I think this, this also gets to the kind of the uh, high, low art culture aspect of the book, which I think is, is really compelling and also speaks to, some of the many, many crises that YouTube finds itself in over the course of your book. Yeah, it's from uh, Logan Paul, who's uh, still is a, a, a pretty big YouTuber. And when he um, uh, rather infamously 
filmed in the what's called the suicide forest in Japan and filmed a, a vlog where they stumbled upon the dead body. Uh, and then it was so interesting to me, like the, he chose to, he posted the video, obviously and it became like one of the top trending videos during, I think it was like New Year's Eve. Uh, and so like YouTube was kind of late to respond in part because everyone working there was on, was like out for the holidays, but he posted it. He had like an introductory video, like an introduction to the video like warning people talking about suicidality. He like blurred out the face. He did everything that he thought was the sort of responsible thing. Uh, but, but clearly uh, there was this immediate backlash. And it was also this moment where I talked to someone like his partner manager at YouTube and get into like what that means. But he said that moment was the first time that they realized that their stars were truly global because it was covered around the world, which seems kind of I, I kind of doubt that because I think this was like late 2017. YouTube was already like a global force by then. But I, it, it was an, another like a moment uh, of reckoning um, with the one of several with a company um, and. It, it like had that that incident, that video alone, like changed a lot of their their policies. And so it, it also like uh, I forget the exact quote, but uh, I think it was something like I didn't think this would get so real. Uh, I'm sure that was a really excellent quote. Yeah, which I think is uh, really defines a lot of the story of, of what you're telling here. I mean, it's it's you're sort of tracking YouTube from its beginnings, obviously, to the to the current day and and what i found really interesting about that is it's it's one way of tracking how people understand technology companies but also how technology companies understand themselves i think that's right i mean youtube sort of has this uh vision of itself that's often inconsistent with what it actually is and you know in inside the company they talk about this in the terms of oh there's a difference between the brand uh, of what we want and the platform and sort of like that that and i think you can often hear that from the executives like what they talk about youtube as as an educational as a learning platform as a music service right which it is and then it's also many other things i thought like the central sort of I mean, I wanted the book to read like a dark comedy and hopefully it does like the tension is that there are people inside youtube who are you know largely like Northern California liberals like have really like the, this this vision of the site is that they they're taking on Hollywood and all like the stale male world of Hollywood and providing this gateway for diversity and and new forms of entertainment and and new pathways of like creativity and that's in sort of like a disnified version of the internet right and that just repeatedly like the platform has shown that it's not that um, and for a variety of reasons, the people inside the company have a hard time accepting that. And some of it's like willful blindness, I think, to like, and like YouTube's gift of its size, right? It's, is that it can, it can always say like, well, we're not actually that. And, and in like, like for instance, a uh, political content or news commentary, right? Um, Susan Wojcicki is the CEO of YouTube has said like, that's a relatively small percentage of YouTube, which is very true. But in, in YouTube, like relative things that are relatively small are still, uh, massive, just given the the scale of the of the platform. So, why focus on YouTube specifically? Like, what is the significance of this particular platform in understanding the the development of the internet over the last few decades, the attention economy, all that? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is like it is um, kind of criminally undercovered um, in, in I think uh, certainly in journalism, in in scholarship, in like Congress, right? Like, and and we can get into the reasons for that. But I think like that was something that interests me. 
just covering Google for a long time as my day job, like YouTube was was sort of a Hollywood story when I initially started covering Google in 2015 and YouTube was like by then, you know, 10 years old, it was kind of trying to take on like streaming and Hollywood and this, and it, it was like covered by the media reporters um, and not like the Google reporter was kind of covering like the corporate story and, and self-driving cars and oh, like the new uh, shiny penny. And then obviously like after Trump, like it became YouTube became a content moderation and a platform story and became a, uh, an increasingly like headache for Google. I think the other, like it is also shaped, they talk about this in the book, uh, I kind of hope this comes across. It's like so much of the direction of social media is YouTube, right? Like TikTok, uh, Instagram now, and we can see it pretty like clearly on Instagram or like I opened up my Facebook feed for the first, like Facebook page for the first time in a while and noticed like, these are just, these are, in, why are there like influencers dancing in the middle of my Facebook page? Like these are not my friends and family, that is the YouTube model, right? It's like the parasocial relationships. It is a creator economy. That's what's won out. And then like so many other platforms, TikTok, Spotify, Twitch, Meta are, are going to, are already and going to wrestle with the same exact sort of content moderations and complications that YouTube's had because YouTube's been the only platform that has this, not just the, the regular um, social media issues, but this massive economy that they built up that makes everything they do much more complicated. Yeah. So tell, tell me about that economy. And I, I think that goes back to some of what we were talking with uh, about at the beginning with Logan Paul, uh, the sort of the very particular relationship that YouTube has with the people using its platform and producing content on it. Yeah. I mean, it's called the YouTube Partner Program. And it's this is the, the they set up in 2007, which is like remarkably early sharing ad revenue with um, they weren't called creators, just like YouTubers or like uploaders. We don't think about them as business partners, but we should. Like they are business partners with Google. Um, Logan Paul is a massive business partner with Google. That I built up, you know, that they're they're like uh, YouTube often points to this as sort of they've they've now like commissioned studies to demonstrate their impact on the economy, which is like a very politically savvy move. It's not, and I never really got to the bottom of this. Unfortunately, I think it's like something that only a few people know. Like it's a pretty top heavy economy. Like I think my my guess like a somewhat informed guess is like the top five percent of creators make up the bulk of the money it, it like youtube's part of its business success is this sort of like long long tail um and so because it's you know you can go on and find like any number of things that you look up right like any number of niches right and um and like how-to videos and like some many of those still make decent money or make money i don't know if they're like making it like six figure incomes but there are and there's enough of a distribution of like the advertising model works really well because you can do like really targeted, not even just using like you don't need necessarily to use uh, someone's browsing history. You can just target them based on the videos that they watch. And so it is there's a very wide distribution. But I think it's it's that economy and YouTube, I think, is aware of this is like mostly going to the really top successful creators. Um, but but there's also this like a lot of the the whole premise of YouTube is that there's nothing keeping you from becoming a phenomenally successful creator. Right. And in that sense, I think it speaks to the kind of what people often call the flatness of social media platforms, that this is something that is theoretically, uh, if not actually accessible to everybody, that there's nothing that distinguishes between you and, you know, Logan Paul or any other extremely successful YouTuber. Yeah. I, Logan Paul is actually like, a, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Mr. Beast. 
but uh, Mr. Beast is right now probably the most popular. He just crossed 100 million subscribers. Uh, and he's much more of like an everyman than than Logan Paul. Like Logan Paul is uh, an extremely fit, attractive. Like he looks he started in like had a dalliance with with Hollywood. Now he's doing boxing. But like he like looks like a like a 90s TV star. Right. Like Jimmy Donaldson, who is Mr. The um, really Mr. Beast does not. He's got like scraggly facial hair. He like look he's kind of awkward and uh, like on the spectrum. And he looks like just an average guy and i think like for some reason i'm sure there are many other reasons about his appeal and his like the way he's structured his youtube channel but i feel like that's something that's really fascinating to me is like he's this this everyman character that has in part like succeeded because he's kind of approaches youtube like a computer scientist um but but like totally speaks to it and like a lot of his his, his videos are like wish fulfillment and the idea that like there's nothing keeping you from being a youtube star yeah, you know, so you said, you know, Mr. Beast, I got to be honest, I had no idea who that was. I think that one of the one of the really compelling things about YouTube and and the way that you write describe the story in your book is just that it reflects how, you know, to some extent how internet culture stays the same as you were saying, you know, we see YouTube reflected its influence reflected on TikTok on Facebook, but it's also, you know, things change really rapidly. The YouTube that I remember watching clips on in like the mid aughts is very different from the YouTube now. And what I found interesting is that you actually see some of that bafflement in the people who are actually running YouTube. One of the things that you describe is that the people who run YouTube do not actually watch YouTube <laughs> that that often. And so you see this this strange distance from the content that is making their platform so successful. Um, and that struck me in a way as kind of perhaps an exaggerated version, but a, a reflection to some extent of the bafflement that you often seem to see in people who run these big platforms. You know, like the every time that Twitter rolls out an update, there's always people asking, you know, do the people who run Twitter actually, yeah, actually yeah. use Twitter at all? Um, I'm curious, do you think that that dynamic is exaggerated in YouTube sense? Is it, is it different or is it reflective of this sort of general trend? I think it's I think it's ref- the, the the general trend. I mean, I think like it, it's a little bit different in the sense that like you don't expect the executives at YouTube to be uploading videos. Although early on, like they actually hired, they went out and I, I talk about this in the book that like the nickname I came up like that someone came up with them was like the Cool Hunters. They were the community managers and the first editors of they actually like curated YouTube.com. And they were YouTubers. Like a few of them were hired because they did so well on YouTube. A few of them then started to post their own videos. Like Steve Grove was, this is kind of remarkable. Steve Grove was like politics and news editor. And it's crazy to think that YouTube is now like steers the hell away from this stuff. But like his, he would p- upload frequent videos and he wanted to do sort of like a meet the press style YouTube show. And then for a long time, they steered away from that for a variety i think the viacom lawsuit over copyright was a major reason um and then just like the google approach they recently hired what they call like a creator liaison who's just a youtuber that um which i think is a smart like super like long overdue um but there is like it, listen you know being able to watch all obviously people can't like keep their fingers in the pulse of all of youtube it's just especially even like just if you just limit it to like the u.s but that being said, like there, you talk to like a lot of the successful creators and they like are familiar, they like know what does well on the platform. They all see these trends pop up because like this is their, this is their career and their livelihoods. They're like part of this culture in a way I think the company has not been and is trying a little bit. But more recently, 
a lot of pressure from YouTubers themselves. But like the 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 really like powerful example I thought in the book, which was kind of crazy, is like this. Um, one of the scandals that rocked YouTube the hardest was the kids content, the strange phenomenon of adults dressing up in like um, superhero costumes, which went from like the scale of like vaudevillian innocence to just like really disturbing trauma that YouTube then had to like make tons of changes. There were videos from pretty popular YouTubers like pointing that trend out like a year before YouTube did anything. And so I think that just speaks volumes about like the the gap that there is and like understanding what's actually happening on the platform. Yeah. So I want to go back to the the kids YouTube stuff because I think it's super interesting and touches on many different things. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about the Viacom lawsuit, because that I thought is obviously, as you say, crucial to sort of the story of YouTube. And it also gets to a point that I've seen uh, a lot of scholars of content moderation point out. I think Daphne Keller has made this point that when we talk about content moderation, a lot of that actually has to do with copyright. Mm -hmm. And in a very real way, copyright and the the specific legal regime that involves copyright is kind of what shapes the internet and makes the internet go round. So tell me tell me that story. Yeah, I mean uh just jumping up like Susan Wojcicki wrote this op-ed in the Washington Wall Street Journal was it a year ago about like why YouTube was willing to to do like willing to do a certain amount of content moderation, moderation around COVID misinformation, but like really wanted to draw the line because they were facing increasing threats from the government for takedowns. And she used this like uh, metaphor that her like grandmother was a librarian. But then she like talked about like the the great ills facing um, the internet, right? And like talked about misinformation and harassment and then, like copyright was right up there. Uh, and so like, anyway, I, I think that like, and someone, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I talked to someone early on from Google and YouTube. Was, you really don't understand YouTube and like you can't understand the company unless you know like that so many of their at least on the policy and, and legal side cut their teeth on on the Viacom lawsuit. So I for like the non lawyers working at the company, the lawsuit was like shorthand for this is why we have to be a platform. Um, like that's how it was communicated down. Like this is not just like Section two thirty, but like the Viacom lawsuit demonstrates that like, we can't have like knowledge pre- uh, of the material on the site and, and we, we won that lawsuit which was like incredibly important for like the fact that youtube would it was like, eventually won in 2010 right and then there was went back to the courts and i think 2013 was when it was final but it's still even after that it became this shorthand for um you know i talked to like one of the characters is claire stapleton who worked as a marketing manager and like her first job was doing like curation on on YouTube and and like her manager was like you, we have to like play it really straight because of Viacom. And so I think just even like not without even getting into the intricacies of the of the lawsuit, um, which I can happy to do so, but it, like it just had this lasting impact on shaping the way that YouTube approached moderation. It like it, but it even like approached it, its culture and its company like a credos. Um, and I sometimes like that's probably a little bit of a convenient excuse. But it was, you know, there was the more chilling examples of like people that intentionally went out to like look for transphobic comments or uh, inside YouTube or like created like looking for term for video. This is before their their borderline video policy. It was like looking for effectively like borderline videos, videos and that didn't break the hate speech or harassment rules, but came like super close enough that they didn't want to recommend. And then these people were told, like, we can't proactively go out and look for these things. 
uh, because that puts us in legal jeopardy. Yeah. And so for listeners who are familiar, walk me through just at a high level, what is it that Viacom was suing over and why did that make YouTube nervous about the level of curation that you're describing? Yeah. So this is the lawsuit was in March of 2007, which was like five months after Google acquires YouTube. And I think very like I, Viacom wasn't really paying attention to YouTube until Google uh, paid an, an enormous sum. So it was around the DMC violating the DMCA. It was like that that I think there were something like 100,000, if I remember, like videos that Viacom claimed that YouTube that had been uploaded without Viacom's consent. Uh, and so they were that that was the claim is that YouTube was not just infringing on like the the IP, but actually like making like I believe the DMCA like makes it clear that you can't like make money from that. And because YouTube was running ads uh, on that, um, those videos like that was the the, the claim of the lawsuit. I think and like in, in like colorful language, like that YouTube had robbed entertainers and creative people of, of billions of dollars. of and, and like one of the early the the, the first lawsuit that they faced was from uh, Zoe Turr, who was a had like a helicopter, the, 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 the person that shot the original OJ Bronco footage, like the famous footage from uh, and then like the, the famous footage from the Watts riots, too, and and found her material like on YouTube, uploaded without her consent, uh, filed a lawsuit and eventually like joined this, these larger groups of lawsuits from not just Viacom, but like several sports leagues uh, and record labels that at the time uh, basically saw YouTube as like a re- repeat of Napster. One of the things that you wrote about really jumped out at me because it, it suggests how immediately this question of content moderation shows up on YouTube. Uh, so you you have this story very early on in YouTube's history where one of the creators sends a test website to a friend who responds, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, essentially, nice, how are you going to keep out the porn? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in some ways, as we're kind of hint- hinting at here, you know, that question never really goes away. And it turns out to kind of be the question, except, you know, it's, it's of course, it's not only porn, it's violence, it's harassment, it's any kind of material that YouTube might not want on on its platform. And so you've described there with Viacom how it that really shapes the platform's thinking about what it means to be responsible and to know what's on its platform. It does sort of take these steps toward more involvement, then it steps back, it sort of moves away. Well, just walk me through sort of the arc of YouTube's thinking about content moderation and how involved the platform has been in that process. Yeah, I think it's really a fascinating one and, and like sort of encapsulated with this this quote from the book from like an early sort of one of the earliest uh, content moderators they hired they, they called the squad you know she talked she went on to work for for twitter and talked about how it's like consistent with every platform it's like first you have a community then you get really big then you have yourself a platform and so i think like the approach is it's a little bit this is a, a little bit rough like or i'm being a maybe too imprecise, but like, I do think they early on, they treated it like a community. Like it was like, here's our, this is our community of uh, video uploaders and fans and like people using YouTube. And like at the time it was, you know, there certainly had a lot more viewers than people uploading, but there was a pretty, there was enough of an overlap where like, if you're watching YouTube, the odds of you like uploading a video were a lot higher than they are today, right? Where you have like 2 billion people and they're not uploading videos. And they even had like a video reply function. So like that was sort of, it was like a lot more like social features. So I think, you know, they wrote uh, fairly eloquent rules um, given the fact that they were like making up, making this up as they went along. 
you know, like Micah Shaver was he's a character in the book and one of the earliest policy staffers and had worked with, uh, I don't know if anyone in the audience remembers, uh, Rotten.com. It's like an early website. That was, I still think it's still around, actually. It was basically just like gross out images, mostly from medical texts. And this was like a like a screw you to the to the um, Communications Decency Act. But so like familiar and, and Micah was like familiar with uh, live journal culture back then. And an example that I thought was really fascinating was familiar with live journal culture and like the early sort of like the web 2.0 like internet and knew enough of that the trend there was pro anorexia content that like there were actually women uploading like uh, not just videos but like posts and journals and blogs praising anorexia and so like they saw that appear on youtube pretty early on like set an age gating policy in place like they didn't they don't have the tools that youtube has today of like the you know they can downrank them in recommendation engine but that is like effectively removing it from search and putting an age gate was a way to do that pretty early and so i like it was i think like surprisingly sophisticated and ahead of its time you know it did that moderation approach uh didn't do what google likes to do which is scale like it was um you have to hire a lot more and and like i thought this was a great metaphor like the first team of content moderators and screeners that YouTube hired literally sat in the front row of the, like the first thing that people saw when they came into the office. Uh, eventually they, when this is before they joined Google, eventually they moved them to a different part of the office, but like they were YouTube employees, right? They had benefits, they, they had equity and, and then flash forward a few years. And most of the content moderation has been outsourced to a variety of companies across the globe. So I think there, there's that middle period where they, and people that work there understand, admit this, like really underinvested in uh, moderation relative to their growth starting in like in 2012 to like 2016 period. I think there's also, I mean, the uh, the Arab Spring was this really pivotal moment in, in YouTube's history as well as like the, the social internet. And I think shaped their approach to moderate, like still in that time, like someone who was hired in 2011 I, and was told me like that, the question they were asked is like, how are you going to fight tooth and nail to keep videos up? Which I think spoke to that, that they were facing a lot, you know, like initially the, some of the f- first test cases that Google lawyers had to deal with at YouTube was that in Thailand where the platform was accused of, of violating the law about, um, uh, I can't speak French. Uh, the, the one about criticizing the, the King and similar like Turkey, Pakistan, countries like blacked out youtube for, for a long period of time so that the content moderation back then was really like how are we going to fight for uh, both media companies and governments around the world are trying to like not only take our videos down but like eliminate youtube like how are we going to stand up for that yeah and i think if, if you want to go more into the arab spring i think as you say that's a really crucial inflection point and and you often see that pointed to in conversations around content moderation as this point where it becomes clear what the power of social media can be, uh, but also its its potential dangers and downsides. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, and I saw this really like surprisingly relevant. So um, this week in uh, Florida, there was another, uh, I think it was on Twitter, and we saw this like another like hurricane shark that popped up. Did you see this? Like, yeah, the um, this was, uh, I think it was, God, when was the first one? It was like a decade ago. In yeah, and so for, for listeners who aren't familiar, it's every time there's a hurricane, somebody yeah. posts a video of a shark yeah. that seems to be swimming on a right. highway, and it's never real. <laughs> yeah. Well, why? so why it's relevant to YouTube, I didn't know this before researching the book, 
YouTube actually had like a pretty extensive partnership. Like a, they pay them as business partners uh, for this company called Storyful, uh, which was a digital newsroom that was part of this trend. Um, it was pretty popular around and like naive, but popular in, or a decade ago when the Arab Spring happened of like, you know, oh, newsrooms can't get into Iran and, and Turkey and, and Egypt but they can like there's a ton of footage coming out of there right and so like it was really popular in social and on twitter and like storyful uh set up this pretty savvy operation where they would like verify the tweets and social media and youtube videos coming out of the middle east youtube uh so it was their their like i mentioned steve grove was their first politics and, and news manager uh went out and formed this partnership and my understanding was like they were basically verifying footage that then like the YouTube team would sort of surface higher up and 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 the algorithm and like try to put on the homepage if they can and like get it to people who are interested in those topics. The book is full of all sorts of like what ifs, right? Like clearly you can't say like that the misinformation and and like uh, the political problems would have been solved if if YouTube had invested. But like I think there is a, an argument that like if right now what YouTube is doing is effectively like trying to repeat that formula in different ways. So I thought that was really interesting. Like at one point I have in the book, they like talk about acquiring Storyful. It didn't happen. And and then like YouTube sort of turned and got really fascinated with Google Plus, which is a whole different topic. But um, so there was a, you know, the, the Arab Spring was and it, it was, uh, you know, the, the, they had a business incentive to do this. Like this was an opportunity for them. They were still trying to shake this reputation that they were just like cat videos and dogs on skateboards. And the Arab Spring was like, YouTube can be a place where serious news happens, uh, where serious world events unfold. Uh, and so that was the business rationale for making this investment. And then, like, I mean, I, I, the Innocence of Muslims is another that happened in late 2012, which is like the turning point for YouTube in particular, but but the turning point for for the like geopolitically for the Arab Spring. Yeah. So so talk about that, because I think that that gets to this question of, you know, at what point is YouTube's responsibility to keep content up? And to, at what point does it start being responsible to take content down as well? And and if you could also remind listeners what yeah. that video was, because it's, it's been a while. Yeah, the video is a fascinating story. And I like almost wanted to go down the rabbit hole, but I, I avoided that one. So but it was uploaded by a, an Egyptian uh, Coptic Christian who lived in California, I think. And it was a 12 minute trailer for a movie that was never made. Uh, and I think there were there were lawsuits around the, the movie. And but um, it was uh, like this like sword and sandals sort of depiction of the Prophet Muhammad and the birth of Islam as very barbaric. It, I watched it. Uh, it is like bad, like just just like not not like aesthetically. And so it came, I think it was like in like this summer of 2012 uh, and not like a popular YouTube channel at all. Uh, and so it didn't, it like went without notice until a few months later and it somehow got uh, caught up in the swirl of geopolitics around it. Like I think it appeared on like uh, Egyptian cable and, and there were protests in Pakistan and Libya. This was around September of that month was the, the uh, Benghazi attacks. So the Obama State Department actually came to YouTube and said, like, we want you to take this video down. It is uh, directly related to protests, like destabilizing protests around the world. YouTube had this, uh, from my understanding, a pretty extensive debate about this. And I think it speaks to just like how the company approached 
uh, these kind of problems, right? It was like, we need to have like a blanket policy. We're not going to like do one off for just certain videos. Uh, is this a incitement to violence? Uh, or is this just criticism of religion? And YouTube decided it was criticism of religion. We don't want to outlaw and prohibit uh, criticism of religion on our platform. They kept the video up. Uh, not only that, but they actually like, kind of used it as like this moment years later of like testing our resolve that we are, you know, we're the platform of free speech and, and like, we, you know, we don't cave to governments, even our own. I mean, I, it's impossible to say, but like it's, it strikes me as like, I think of that circumstances were repeated today. YouTube would remove the video incredibly fast. Yeah, I think that that seems right to me as well, just because the the political context has has shifted so much. Um, I do want to go back to to something that you said uh, in your your previous answer about sort of roads not taken. Um, and one of those roads seems to have to do with the the role of human moderation on the one hand versus the role of machine learning and you you have sort of countless instances in in the book where someone will raise concerns about whether you know human curation should be more involved in sorting through footage of one type or another and and someone tells them you know great news we're at google we have an algorithm mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. to to handle that so tell me about how algorithmic content moderation, the, the role of the algorithm in driving this site grows over the course of, of YouTube's rise and how you see the problems of that beginning to appear. Yeah, I think there's there's like two key moments that I talk about in the book. One is like the um, this early team of community managers that whose job in part was to curate the homepage. Uh, this was back in like the first four years of the site or so or five years and and there was like it was sort of just kind of expected right like everyone's gonna have come come to youtube.com and see the same thing and they, they certainly like they had the recommendation engine that was tailored based on like your viewing history but in in the set like the part like they didn't have a software system to to basically like curate the and, and program the homepage, and so this early team would they they picked some like gems and and like made some careers and did some like I think kind of fun creative decisions right like they did a full takeover of like uh, remember the early viral like chocolate rain video of covers of that they like did like guest curation from like Wes Craven and Rob Zombie they rickrolled the entire internet once so and then around 2010 their their jobs are changed and we say like the kind of gradual implementation of uh, a software algorithmic system for for the, picking the the homepage and then like the YouTube feed, um, a couple things like one is this time in history YouTube was extremely concerned about Facebook. Facebook had this is even really before like the dawn of the mobile internet, but Facebook had this really compelling uh, feed that YouTube has never really had, right? Like people certainly like there's a lot of mobile use on on youtube but people don't like just scroll through and it was in what the news feed was also like tailored to individuals i know the people at youtube some people thought that the the way of having people inside staff pick curate videos for the homepage was basically turning them into kingmakers and gatekeepers right and that felt antithetical to the company's culture they were also frantically trying to expand to every market, including uh, they had plans to go into China, but they never went. And and it was like, well, we can't replicate this model 
Uh, I mean, I guess they can. They're Google. They can do anything. But they decided they didn't want to replicate this model in every single market and, and software is more cost effective and consistent with the company culture. The other thing is like people brought this up in multiple occasions, like the, the Viacom lawsuit, but they hadn't won the Viacom lawsuit by this point. And so it, in court, they were arguing like, listen, we don't, we have no uh, preconceived knowledge. Like we don't intentionally go out and edit footage where we're, you know, we're not a media company. And then you had a small group of people that were going out and looking for videos to like basically edit. So I think it felt like an inconsistency. And so that was a pivotal moment and and in part like really jump started YouTube's growth, like turning into this the recommendation system that is um for all its faults and criticism effectively good at what it at its task, right? It is it is optimized to feed videos that are will increase watch time, like the longer engagement with videos and and it's done a phenomenal job of of, of doing that. I think years years later, like during the Trump year Trump years, there were like uh, you know, some of my main characters, main character in my book worked on YouTube marketing, which I think is really speaks to this tension between like the way the company sees itself and the, the way the platform actually behaves. They tried, they had these approach like spotlight, um, an attempt to spot like certain creators and certain trends that the company found like admirable. And those often, but you know, the YouTube would like put these in the homepage or like try to kind of put them in front of viewers, but they were often in conflict with uh, the main chief goal of the company and the algorithm, which is watch time. Um, so the YouTube had a program called Originals that they just scrapped earlier this year that was like to take on Netflix and Amazon, like a subscription-only TV shows, basically episodes starring YouTube creators. My sense from some people inside was that those Originals or like some people inside the company were like, we should get these out to more. We want to get these out to more viewers, like put them up higher in the recommendation and search results. But they actually didn't perform as well on watch time. Uh, and so they were like two parts of YouTube competing with, these, with themselves. So we talked earlier about the very, very strange rabbit holes that uh, kids YouTube sent people down. Mm -hmm. And that also has to do with the weird quirks of the algorithm and this kind of Frankenstein story of creating something that you might not necessarily be able to control. So tell me about ElsaGate. <laughs> I don't know who coined it, but it's just a great. I wish I could give them credit. ElsaGate was a, a confluence of several controversies in late 2017, uh, one of which was this this trend of people dressing up like superheroes. And I think it's like, basically, the, in its simplicity, it's like uh, Elsa was Frozen. I forget what year Frozen came out, but it was like, you know, the biggest children's franchise ever, I think, of all time, right? And so Disney owns Marvel, Disney owns produce Frozen. Uh, Disney for a long time was a pretty reluctant participant in YouTube. And um, I think like the history of Disney and Google and YouTube is really fascinating. But so, you know, Disney went out and bought a YouTube studio, maker studios that work with PewDiePie and a bunch of stars. But like Disney didn't want to put Frozen for obvious reasons on YouTube, right? Like they were building Disney Plus. And they didn't put Marvel movies on there. And so you saw this, like, there's a vacuum where people will go in and search for Frozen or search for Elsa uh, and YouTube, like parents maybe expecting to find something. And then, like, YouTube creators filled the vacuum and, and made a lot made a lot of videos. Many of them were probably innocent and fine and, like, fan fiction. Uh, and then you started to see a, one of the most popular YouTube channels around that time was this um, Canadian anonymous did well because uh, like a lot of youtube that does well uh 
it wasn't there's no speaking like it was made for international audiences it's called webs and tiara you can go like there are certain parts of the the internet you can go find them they're like deeply weird but they're not i don't know, i mean it's it's arguable about like certainly they're certainly not educational but like how much of kids programming is educational but there's so many what happened was like so many like youtube called them replica channels which i think is a fascinating term that like youtube channels that just imitated this form and then this the other trend that was happening was something like one of the popular search terms on youtube was bad baby and so a lot of people were uploading videos like pranking pranking their children this like strange trope of like dressing up adolescent children as babies and then punishing them became this like very popular phenomenon and youtube basically like the main catalyst for them to crack down was that advertisers which had earlier boycotted earlier that year boycotted the site were threatening to boycott again after a series of bad press um james bridal do you remember this essay something is wrong on the internet yeah it's a it's a really striking essay i'd recommend that people go out and read it if they hadn't agreed and like does a phenomenal job of encapsulating everything like the the main issue was that there are so many content farms that were just churning out children's content like and not even it's like bots making basically bots making material for bots bridal's essay was important because you know talk to people inside youtube they were like they saw it trending on twitter and freaked out uh which i think like speaks volumes about the way that companies make decisions saw it trending on twitter advertisers were about to threatening to walk again it's like around thanksgiving of that year they cracked down just like overnight eliminated thousands of channels and videos and then the YouTubers and like YouTube kids and family is still like to this day, it's a huge part of YouTube. Uh, and so, you know, all these channels overnight, like you lost all their revenue or like woke up to an automated email. That's like your YouTube channel has gone. Uh, and then hence the name Elsa Gate. Yeah. And I think the, the story is interesting because it brings together a lot of different threads, the sort of the just the sheer strangeness of the places that uh, algorithm can lead you, the importance of ad revenue and content moderation. Like you said, a lot of this has to do with advertisers pulling their ads because they didn't want to be associated with this. And one of the other things that this really made me think about is, you know, not only YouTube's difficulty in addressing its responsibilities to kids, but also how kids are kind of the canary in the coal mind of a lot of content moderation problems in a way. So like you you describe yeah. one one meeting where uh, a team is agreeing that YouTube should sort of minimize meddling with recommendations because one person reasons if people are watching that, that's their choice. But then yeah. one employee, Matthew Mengerink, realizes, and I quote, that doesn't work for kids, which is, of course, true. But it's also just an early warning sign that, you know, recommendations can lead adults down ugly paths, too. So I'm I'm curious what you think about that. Oh God, yeah, that's like super fascinating. I think the way that that just like the thought process for people inside Google, which is it like very you know there there's a consistent people told me this that work there right like who are we to to tell people what to watch right and, and so there's an idea that like YouTube as the expression of like the audience is the algorithm, um the audience is king like when when the algorithm behaves in a funky way sometimes they're sort of like it's it's a glitch or we haven't like set up the nest like. You know, we haven't put in enough like safety protocols, but often it's like, eh, this is what the audience is telling us. Right. And yeah, that logic does fall apart with children. Or, I mean, it also like that is clearly like kids were watching the, these like, Elsa Gate stuff. Right. Even though YouTube had their its first solution was to to build the YouTube kids app. I think something that they have never solved is the problem of like tweens. 
Um, so I don't know how much time you've you ever spent on YouTube kids, but, but most of the YouTube kids material is like tailored for preschoolers. And so if you're like an eight year old, you have no interest in, in watching nursery rhymes anymore. Right. And so you're going to go to youtube.com. Uh, and, and so like YouTube kids is just still, I think remains very meager relative to larger YouTube. It, it is the only place where not just YouTube, but really big tech has been regulated is on children's privacy when the uh, Federal Trade Commission fined YouTube for violating COPPA in 2019. And so really like the one place where the company actually has been regulated. And I, and I think you can like see it like YouTube for children looks markedly different now than it, than it did before 2019. So another aspect of YouTube that has gotten a lot of attention when it comes to sort of algorithms sending people perhaps in in weird directions or people using algorithms to uh, guide themselves in directions that they they might always have been curious about but never quite explored has to do with extremism. Not only, you know, early on YouTube's dealing with this uh, when it comes to Islamist extremism, but increasingly after the 2016 election, uh, there's also the problem of far-right extremist videos. And YouTube actually announced a policy change um, exactly on this subject, I think, just just a week or so ago. So tell me a little bit about how YouTube sort of struggled with the interaction of the algorithm and extremism and and what are the new steps that the company has announced to address that? Yeah, I, there's an excerpt of the book uh, in, in Business Week, uh, which I encourage people to read, that addresses precisely this. You know, this is like told from the perspective of, of employees that worked on the issue. So like one of the pivotal moments uh, in YouTube's history was June of 2017, right after the, um, the there was a, a terror attack on the, on the London Bridge. It was, there were reports, I don't think it's ever been confirmed, but that, that one of the attackers was inspired by a cleric's videos, uh, like an, an American cleric that watched on YouTube. And so this was, you know, YouTube was, um, had the advertisers were, were boycotting the site because of extremist videos. And so the company was in like, like, like a biggest sort of business crisis. And then it gets hits with this news and like headlines are like, you know, YouTube cleric caused terror attack basically. Right. So the company decides to take a pretty drastic stance where they, they will, Prior to that, they had a largely like didn't outlaw particular people, right? Like, and there was um this like macabre joke inside the company, like what if 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 Osama bin Laden had started a cooking channel, right? Or ISIS had a cooking channel, like would we take that down? Like, like if it's just and ISIS did like ISIS, they're members of ISIS that would upload just like health information, like videos with health tips, right? Uh, and YouTube really struggled with this because, like, how do we consistently enforce that with our policies? After that, it became like we're going to create a list of people that were like just not allowed here anymore. Like, it was a, a much more stringent crackdown. You know, like what YouTube followed then was the re- official registries of the U.S. and U.K. Uh, I think actually, like, can follow for some reason. I haven't sorted out like follow the U.K. list more more consistently. So the the criticism from people inside the company was that the way this policy was enforced became a very lopsided where it like went after Islamist extremism and, and like Islam much more aggressively than other forms of ideological supremacy. And I think it's, that's undeniably true. Uh, and the company's response has been like, we know, like governments agree what Islamic terror is. 
there's not a consistent policy for say like white supremacy and white nationalism. We don't have, we're not like told direct. We can't basically like remove these accounts with, with policy cover. So I don't know the extent of what they announced recently, uh, but it sounds like they're, they're going to be using like some sort of classification system for expanding extremism beyond just official registries. So we opened in part by talking about how YouTube was, in your words, criminally undercovered. And one of the issues that you touch on toward the end of your book is, you know, why why that is, why it's managed to dodge attention, not just from journalists, but from from regulators. I know uh, Evelyn, Evelyn Duak, who listeners know well, uh, has mm-hmm. referred to this sometimes as YouTube magic dust, that, you mm-hmm. know, it can just dodge attention somehow. So two questions for you. First off, why do you think that is? And and second, you know, is that sustainable as temperatures continue to heat up on tech companies as we maybe, maybe creep towards some form of tech regulation? Is YouTube going to be able to kind of continue dodging attention or is it eventually going to be sort of dragged into the spotlight? I mean, TikTok is a gift for, for YouTube in some ways and Google. Yeah, because like TikTok has, has taken up so much more attention because it is like a, you know uh, it is the hot new app and its Chinese ownership is just a big political football and and a complicated um, problem that YouTube doesn't have. So I think that's like a heat shield in the way that Facebook has been a heat shield for a long time for YouTube. Just like really, YouTube just like hasn't screwed up as bad as Facebook often. Like that's what kept them. I think you know what's another uh, Evelyn's like magic dust is. Um, the fact that just because video is a harder, like it's a, it's a harder medium to analyze, right? Like you have to, it just like requires more legwork and resources to moderate and for outside researchers to, to spend time on YouTube also, I think like shares less data and in part that makes them more immune from, from criticism. And there was a really like powerful example last summer where president Biden accused Facebook of. Uh, I think he used the term killing people, right, around um, vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, that's right. And it was this criticism because he was using this this list from this this um, UK group that had identified like the top um, on, on social media, the top proponents of vaccine hesitancy and uh, anti-vaxxers. And it was Facebook and Twitter didn't mention YouTube at all. And so this could be like it, on the surface, it looks like, oh, this is a problem for Facebook and Twitter and it's not a problem for YouTube. Like I went to the uh, the research group and was like, why don't you guys have YouTube? It's like, oh, well, Facebook has an API and Twitter has like in YouTube, it just doesn't have this similar API and it's harder for us to access. And so and I'm not faulting the research group here. I mean, like, but in some sense, it, like YouTube was not in the headlines and the president was not citing YouTube simply because the company doesn't make it easy for like to re- outside researchers, which I, they've, I believe they announced earlier this summer that they are going to start opening up some more resources for outside researchers. I mean, we're talking about kids content. Like there was 2016 was a massive report from the American Academy of Pediatricians about media. Con- they didn't even talk about YouTube. Um, and I talked to someone who worked on that. And I was like, yeah, it was just like, wasn't on the radar. And so I think that is not just a fault of researchers, but they, like the company and the platform is like very difficult to study. Um, so hopefully that, 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 that will change. I, I mean, they're always like one controversy away from something like you have this moment. Uh, the recent one is not like a certainly not like extremism, but uh, the Try Guys. Right. I don't know if you heard this one. Right. 
I, I have, but uh, yeah. give listeners a very quick overview. <laughs> yeah, Try Guys, Try Guys is a popular YouTube channel. Actually, came out of like BuzzFeed a few years ago. Uh, there's some controversy where one of the there are four guys and one of them like cheated and 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 like, a workplace affair and is left. It became for some reason like uh, front page news and in part I think driven by like it, they do have a big fan base. It is a controversy. It's another like sort of public celebrity having an affair. Uh, and then the other part of it is like people are like, who are these guys? Right. And it's, so there are all these moments like Mr. Beast is another example, like anyone like for people under 25. He's like one of the most popular entertainers in the world. And and arguably like his video content should be treated like Game of Thrones. Right. It's like we should be analyzing what messages and and this media. Um, and so I think the more and more of like the Try Guys become like sort of cable TV like staples for a certain generation. And then YouTube will like more people will be paying attention to YouTube. All right. Let's leave it there. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's occasional series on our online information ecosystem. Keep an eye out for new episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. And you can also find us in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Padja Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.